0: Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Government is the problem. This will not stand. This will not stand. This aggression against Kuwait. Uh, Indeed, I did have a relationship with Mr. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. America is a strong force for peace. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. And my vice president has shot someone. You smell what Barack is cooking. You didn't build that. I'll give you all a big kiss. The women and the men. I'll, kiss. I'll even kiss the men. Big powerful men. Sit down, you'll hear what I have to say. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, the show for those who want a spirited, irreverent, humorous, and occasionally informative discussion on the latest geopolitical issues that are impacting the energy sector today. Here is your host, Jordan Driscoll. This podcast is brought to you by T, the Empowerment Alliance. The Empowerment Alliance fights for affordable, clean, domestic, and abundant energy for America's energy independence. They want to keep the politics in this podcast and out of the energy industry. Now, if you want to learn more about what the Empowerment Alliance is fighting for or help support the work they're doing, please visit their website, which will be linked in the show notes below. What I can tell you is they are incredibly passionate about promoting America's energy independence, and I hope you'll check them out, sign up for the newsletter, show them some love. They make this show possible, and we very much appreciate that. Welcome to the program, my huddled masses. I'm the aforementioned Jordan Driscoll, your diminutive ATM of reckless opinion. Grab yourself a cup of coffee, and let's get into it. And tonight, I've uh, made some, um, I think this is the, you know, honestly... I just reached in the cupboard and I grabbed a, a pod, I didn't even look at what it was. So this is either dark roast or it's my Nantucket blend or um, maybe it's the, the pecan one, I don't know, we'll say, pecan, pecan, we'll say, yeah, no, actually it is, it's the pecan. Okay, good. Now that we got that out of the way, the ceremonial opening sip of the show, which is how we know the program has started. Um, a little bit of housekeeping will knock out. First off, we got a five-star rating and review from Isaac Pickle. Uh, thank you so much for the review. I deeply appreciate it. Thank you very very much. Um, I know I say this periodically because I'm always astounded that anybody listens to the show, and I very much appreciate it when somebody takes time out of their day to one listen to it and then leave a review. Um, I I'm always flabbergasted by that. I just I Thank you so much. That's that's all I can say. It uh, means a tremendous amount to me, and I uh, I enjoy doing this, and I uh, am glad to know that there's uh, at least some of y'all out there that uh, enjoy listening to it. So my my deepest appreciations. If you would like to leave a review, please feel free and do so. Um, uh, I certainly always do love seeing those. It um, lets us know we're going in the right direction here. If you don't like the show, go listen to something else. That's fine. not going to hurt my feelings. That's okay. Um, you know, if you don't like it, don't bother with a review. Just, just do something you like more. That's okay. Uh, also as usual, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to me via my OGGN email at Jordan.Driscoll at OGGN.com, or you can find me on LinkedIn as a number of our listeners have. Okay. So <clears throat> getting right into it here. Um, so I, uh, just got back from Chicago, uh, I guess yesterday, day before yesterday, and then tomorrow morning, super bright and early, I'm heading off to Florida. My month of travel, which is what May has been, continues, but hopefully hopefully that'll settle down for a couple of weeks after I get back from Florida. I'll be out there for a week, so that'll be fun. That'll be fun. By the time you guys hear this program, I'll already be back home, so there's that. Anyway, so for tonight's show, what do we have? So, um, a couple episodes ago, I uh, did kind of a revisit of Russia-Ukraine, and I had made sort of the offhanded uh, joke that I would, at the drop of a dime, do an episode about the tactical situation with Crimea if anybody wanted to hear that. And I actually got a few listeners that that emailed in and said, okay, yeah, do that. We'll have a bit of that. Do that one. Um, and one listener even emailed in was like, what? You're going to do an episode on the tactical – yeah, I do want you to do that, but what's your experience? What's your qualifications to do a show about the tactical situation in Ukraine or in uh, Crimea? Um, Very little. That's my qualifications. My same qualification – I have slightly more qualifications, and I say slightly, more qualifications to talk about the tactical situation in Crimea than I do to host a geopolitical podcast. I'm just a nerd about geopolitics. I don't have any actual (laughs) – Credentials to be doing this, as in so much as any other podcaster. You want credentials? Hit up a, a, a Joe Petir's show. Uh, the the what is it? I think it's Energy Transitions here on the network. Great guy, love Joe to death. Super smart, smarter than me easily. He's a PhD. I'm just some guy. Um, that guy's got qualifications. He's got all the qualifications in the world. Me? No, they just they found me at a conference. I'm I'm a nobody. But that being said. You are here listening, so we're just going to roll with it. Um, to the point, though, my qualification, I was in the military. I was in the Air Force. I did a, a, a stint there, enlisted. I was a C-130 crew chief, nothing sexy. I wasn't special forces or anything like that. Uh, but I did spend some time in Iraq, Afghanistan, and a few other places, And um, uh, which I guess is appropriate since the day I'm recording this is uh, Memorial Day. So uh, to our... Honored and fallen soldiers, I salute. But anyway, so getting back to it, um, we did have a few folks that wanted me to talk about why the Crimea would be so hard to take, and so I'm actually going to spend a little bit of time in this show talking about that. Um, And then I'm also going to give you a little bit of a follow-up on where we're at, the Turkish elections, which are basically wrapping up literally as we speak. The uh, temporary results have just come in as of the time of this recording. By the time you hear this, it'll be a week from now, and you'll have already seen it in the news if you're paying attention for it. And if you didn't, well, here you go. You're getting it from me. Anyway, back to it, Crimea. So why is it, I think, taking Crimea would be incredibly difficult? So first off, let's just establish a few things. And uh, as I said before, I was not special forces or anything magical like that. I was not a general, okay? I'm just a guy who knows how to read a book and look at a map and make some logical deductions. That's it. That's my qualification. Okay. So when you go to invade something, if you go to go take something from a military perspective, you've got basically like only a handful of broad strokes plays that you can make, right? You can go in with a grounded force, right, ground assault. Your army, your tanks, whatever, they march in, they go take things. Ultimately, it's going to come to that one way or the other. Your next option is to soften the area with air cover, i.e. you have your air force go in and blow shit up and make it, you know, safe for the army to move through there. And you take out most of the defenses, you take out any sort of large military formations that are on the ground. That way your soldiers have an easier time just kind of walking in there. Or you bombard them via airstrikes so heavily that they wind up surrendering without much of a fight. Um, good example of that is is Iraq to shock and awe, right? We all recall that on the news. A billion points of light blasting down on Baghdad. So that's that's option number two. Option number three is your um, amphibious assault type option, which is sort of a combined arm sort of thing. If you want that, think of D-Day, think of Normandy, Omaha Beach, all those kind of things, right? You have your Air Force coming in, softening targets, you've got your Navy shelling the coastline, and you have your Marines going in, establishing a beachhead, pushing forward, and then landing ships and, um, and uh, air aircraft dropping soldiers um, and and getting them in country that way, and then advancing towards whatever your targets are. That's one option. So if you look at those options, those are kind of the broad strokes cards on the table if you're going to go take something over. Okay, now that we got that little bite-sized concept down, let's talk about why Crimea is going to be a total bastard to do that with. First off, um, anything amphibious is basically off the table, right? Ukraine never had much of a navy to speak of, um, <laughs> and they certainly don't have much of one now. Russia has vast amounts of naval resources in the Black Sea by comparison, and while we know their army is a shit show, the Russian navy is probably... S- we don't know, but the presumption is that it's still certainly much larger than... A- I mean, listen, the Russian navy could be as much of a dumpster fire as the army. We don't know at this point because we haven't seen them in operation, but what I can see is they have a navy, whereas the Ukraine pretty much does not. And so, eh, you know, that's a factor, right? Um, Never mind the fact that they obviously have much more of a navy um, and theoretically a more advanced and more capable navy. But at, at, at any rate, showing up to the fight with a navy is better than showing up to the fight without a navy. So Ukraine is in no position where they can conduct any kind of an amphibious assault with any serious expectation of that working. So that right off the bat is off the board. As far as air power, well, as we all should know by this point, there has been zero level of any kind of air superiority established by either Russia or Ukraine in this entire conflict. I mean, that's what all those Stinger missiles have been for and the man pads and all that sort of stuff. Nobody's established air superiority. And in a modern conflict, that's a big, hairy deal. If you don't have air superiority, then you are basically just slugging out on the ground the old-fashioned way, which is brutal. Uh, Look at all of the ongoing offensives in eastern Ukraine right now. It is trench warfare. It's moving by inches and meters and yards, not by giant swaths. And so this is where... Uh, if you don't have, you know, that air control, that becomes a real big problem. We had air superiority in Iraq or Afghanistan or the first Gulf War, any of that stuff, uh, that allows you to just dominate your, your enemy, know exactly where they're at. You can go harass their forces on the way in, on the way out. I mean, and not to mention it makes resupply considerably easier, reconnaissance, all these sort of things. And so the fact that nobody's got air superiority, that's a big hairy deal. It also means that that's off the board for Ukraine as well. I mean, even if Ukraine gets more modern jets, which supposedly is coming from Poland and a few other places, they're still not going to have enough of an air force to railroad the Russians and have air have superiority. That's just not going to be a thing. That's not an option for them, which means going into Crimea, it's going to be ground assault, and that's just it. That is what they've got. There's no amphibious component. There's going to be very little, if any, aerial component. This is a ground war, just like the rest of Ukraine has predominantly been a ground war. If anything, their only aerial objective is to continue to make sure that Russia does not gain air superiority. That's fucking it. Okay. Now that we've established this is going to have to be a ground campaign, let's talk about why it's going to be a super bitch of a ground campaign. And the first thing to talk about on that is geography, which is primarily the biggest issue. Okay, um, the geography of Crimea favors the defender massively, okay? It, right now, if you're listening to this program and you can and you're um you know not driving or something, or if you are driving and you can be very careful with it. Now, I'm kidding, I'm not actually telling you to look this up while you're driving. But if you're at a place where you can safely look it up and you're not familiar with the geography, go look up Google Maps and take a look at the Crimean Peninsula. if you're not you don't have just have a mental map of it in your head. Um, for those of you that can't go and look at it, I'm going to describe it to you. It's basically, it's a peninsula, which, I mean, so is Florida, okay? But the shape of it is unique. The Crimean Peninsula is basically shaped like a diamond, okay? And the only part that actually connects to the mainland of Europe is the topmost little point of this diamond, okay? So what that means is that it's almost an island for all intents and purposes. There's just a little tiny strip of land that's connected up there. And when I say a little strip of land, you know, keep in mind, Crimea is the size of, you know, I don't know, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island sort of combined, that little the southern New England area there. Um, but it's connected to the mainland of Europe. By a strip of land called the Isthmus of Pericop. And this isthmus is only five kilometers or about 3.1 uh, miles or so wide. That's it. That is it. Most, some of you guys go on longer jogs than that during a day. Uh, I certainly don't because I don't believe in jogging. I think it's a sin against nature. But for my health nuts out there, yeah, three miles, five kilometers, that's not a big deal. Um, even I could muddle my way through that if you put a gun to my head, probably. Um, so yeah, that's, that's not a lot of land. And what this means is that if you're going to do a ground assault on Crimea, you have to march your army through this one little strip of land that's three miles long, five kilometers, which means the defender, in this case, I Russia, they know exactly where the attack's going to come from. There is no level of... The question is, when is it going to come, not where is it going to come from? And when you're planning a surprise attack, you kind of want all of the elements of surprise you can get. And if they know that the only place you can attack is this one place, guess what they're going to spend all their time digging in and defending? (coughs) Excuse me. Mines, barbed wire fences, trenches, artillery encampments, all the things. All the things, they're going to dig in there and they're going to say, okay, we know they're going to come this way, so we're just going to layer the defenses, layer the defenses, layer the defenses, and we're going to make it as close to impossible to take this strip of land. They can have all the artillery in the world lined up right there, trained and waiting to just blast the hell out of anybody that shows up there. So this is a big advantage for the defender. Now, to be fair... The wetlands on either side of this little tiny isthmus of Piracop is water, but it's a marshy-type water. Now, I um, I don't know how many of you guys have ever had cause to have to move through a marsh on foot. Um, if not, I would highly recommend a ruck march sometime. That's a, a real ton of fun. But... It's quite difficult. You're not marching columns of infantry and tanks through through a mush. And when I say a mush, I mean, keep in mind this this ranges from one and a half to three feet deep or about half a meter to a meter deep all the way around in these massive swamps. It's a swamp called the Savash. And um, you're not getting you're not getting large numbers of tanks and troops and supply trains and personnel vehicles and all of that through that because that's just, you know, It's either just straight-up mud or it's water that's just deep enough to fuck up all of your mechanics, right? So, I mean, it's just—you're going to have to go through the isthmus. There is, however, a slight caveat to that. The caveat is that this is a tidal wetland. And what that means is during low tide, the Savash actually becomes land traversable. Now, it's still a muddy, shitty mess, but you can get heavy equipment over it. And you can get infantry over it slowly and grudgingly, but it can be done during low tide. There's about a an hour or two long window that you can move with relative ease, infantry and, and heavy equipment and cavalry and all that, across this wetland during low tide. And what this would enable you to do is, theoretically, if you're an especially bold, uh, ambitious general— is you could launch a frontal assault on the Isthmus of Paraquam, which you know is going to be heavily defended. And that would kind of be a bit of a red herring, right, if you were to do this. Because you know you're going to take lots of casualties, and that's going to be a bloody mess. But it's kind of where you're expected to come from. Unless you had the main part of your force slip around and flank the Russians through the Sauvage, and hit them from behind by going through these marshes during that little window you get in low tide, at peak low tide. Now, the problem with this is, inherently, that the moment the tide starts to come back in, you lose all your access to reinforcements, and most importantly, to escape in case things don't go well. If you do not accomplish your objectives, you are trapped there until the tide goes back out, and... The odds are you are very likely to be outnumbered if you get into Crimea because it is effectively an island fortress at this point. So while it's a bold, ballsy play, and I love the idea of it, there's a lot of risk there. And so, yes, can you march an army over the Savash for an hour or two in one quick break? Yeah, but you those guys better be prepared to stay in it because they are in for the duration if it comes down to it. So that's the thing to keep in mind there. You also have to keep in mind the Russians have been in one way, shape or form in the Crimea for a long, long time. They've got uh, Sevastopol, which is basically on the bottom tip of that diamond, a massive Russian fortress, which is also the headquarters of the Russian Black Sea fleet. Um, <clears throat> it's It's a literal fortress that they've been digging into for the past decade. It's based on the, you know, the ruins effectively of an old Soviet fortress back when the Soviet Union owned the joint. And they've been digging in there for a long, long time. There's just they've been there a while. they got they got defenses set up. they got walls. they got all the things. So again, if you can't come in there with air power, you're going to be forced to deal with this with a ground assault. And historically, ground assaults in the Crimea have been bloody, bloody messes. Uh, well, I mean, let's just take a look at the history shot because hey, it's this show. You knew I was going to get into history at some point. Okay, so let's go all the way back to the appropriately named Crimean War of the 1850s. During the Crimean War, the French, British, and Ottomans launched an attack on Russian-controlled Crimea. They outnumbered the Russian defenders and even still took 100,000 casualties to take the place. 100,000 casualties. They basically had to pay... (coughs) If you're in Texas, an Abilene. An Abilene's worth of people to get the place, right? If you're in Georgia, it's about in Athens. Um, I don't really know my population centers for other places, so that's what you're going to get. But the 100,000 people is a fuck ton of people. That's a lot of people to throw into the meat grinder to take Crimea. Now – I could go into a whole lot of arguments about how the British generals at the time made some rather dodgy calls and how the French did some rather questionable things as far as tactics go with their, with their uh, infantry and you know the Ottomans had their own issues. But, but that doesn't really matter. The point is 100,000 people, when they had the numerical advantage, should give you an idea of just what a pain in the ass it is to take this, this island. And it's not just the Crimean War. We can move the timeline up a little bit further. Uh, the 1920s, uh, during the Russian Civil War, the pro zar whites had control of Crimea, and the communist Bolshevik Reds attacked it trying to root them out. And the Reds attacked with four times the numbers of soldiers than the whites had. Four times. They also did the low tide savash attack where they tried to rout the defenders at the isthmus by marching their forces over there during a feint attack on the front and coming in from behind. And even with that, they still took five times the number of losses the Whites did. That's how strong of a defensive position this isthmus and this this peninsula gives you. The only reason the Reds managed to win it's because they just happened to have a lot more bodies to throw at the meat grinder than the whites did. But they still took five times the losses. That's insane. They could just soak up the body count, which, I mean, I mean, we all know how much the Soviet Union back in the day just loved to throw bodies at a problem until it sorted itself out, and this was no different. They started that tradition pretty much from day one. But it did work, but my God, at what cost? Now we roll the clocks forward just a couple of decades, we get to World War II, and in 1941, the Germans, during their invasion of Russia, attempted to take the Crimea. The Germans had to assault the Crimea for eight months before they managed to crack the defenses and take the joint. The Germans lost 30,000 men over eight months taking the Crimea, and the Germans had the advantage of more people, better technology, they had air power, They had far better artillery. They had all the things. I mean, we all know what a badass Nazi Germany was during World War II. I mean, it took the combined might of, like, everybody to knock them down and get them out of the fight. It was such a big deal. It was called a world war. And even Nazi Germany couldn't crack that nut very easily. Eight months, 30,000 bodies. That's a lot. Okay. Then you take it just... A couple of years after that, to 1944, the Soviets were marching back through, and they were going to retake the Crimea from the Nazis, because of course they were. And, you know, God, everybody wants the fucking Crimea. The Russians, the Ukrainians, the Tartars, you know, there's the, the Nazis, the Ottomans, the Brits. I mean, it's just a nice piece of land. We all have to have a slice of that. Um, honestly, I'm really surprised with all this that America hasn't rolled over there and decided that maybe they should just, you know, I mean, time for America to have a bit of the Crimea, right? That seems like a nice piece. Everybody else wants it. Why don't we get in on that? Um, pro tip, Biden, if you're listening, we should go invade Crimea. Anyway, so Soviets come back through. They want to take out uh, the, the – they want to retake the Crimea from the Nazis. So they come back in. Now, keep in mind, the Germans hadn't had time to rebuild the defenses. The walls had been smashed, uh, the trenches had been bulldozed over, all the things. So all the big built-up fortifications, the Nazis didn't have time to actually re-implement. They were just forced to to hold it using the terrain itself effectively. And even with that, it took 30 days, it took a month for the Soviets to finally penetrate those defenses and retake it. With a 2-to-1 numerical advantage— And the Soviets still took 85,000 casualties. And the number of bodies the Soviet Union was throwing at problems in World War II is truly astonishing. If you've never read up on it, it is mind-blowing how many waves of bodies they threw at problems in World War II. I mean, look at anything on the Eastern Front. Look at anything involving the siege of Stalingrad. Look at anything involving the Crimea. I mean... I, frankly, I don't know how they even had anybody left to perpetuate the Cold War by the time World War II was done. I mean they'd thrown everybody in a bear at the front lines to try and win the thing. Like how How did they even – anyway, well, that's a whole other conversation. But uh, yeah, if you don't know, go look some of that stuff up. It's fascinating. The Russians <laughs> It was not a good time to be born between the ages of 18 and 45 back in those days. That's that's all I have to say about that. Anyway, so yeah, um, 85,000 casualties, and it took them a month. And that was the last time, you know, up until Russia came to take the Crimea by force back in, in 20, um, 2011, 2012, uh, that that happened. And, it just it heavily, heavily favors the defender. that's that's all there is to it. Um, so, yeah, that's I mean, I'm not going to go into too much more detail, and I think that's enough to give you an idea. But if you don't have air support, if you don't have amphibious capabilities to try and broaden out where the attack might come from, and you're left to a pure and simple ground assault, yeah, you're you're going to be in in a world of pain. And, you know, I think I said this the other night in that episode I recorded about the situation. I think the real solution here is not to attempt a ground assault on Crimea because it's too hard. I think the solution really is probably something more like um, placing the whole peninsula under siege. I mean, the upshot to it is because you only have a three-mile, five-kilometer strip of land connected to the mainland, if you can take all the land north of that— you can cut off any ground-based supplies getting into Crimea. And in fact, the only source of fresh water Crimea has is from a um, an aqueduct that was built back in the uh, Soviet days from mainland Ukraine into the Crimea. And so if you take that, you can actually divert that water supply and basically start thirsting the entire peninsula out um, pretty effectively. If you do that, you'd, you know... At that point, the only way for them to get the water in is to either fly it in, uh, boat it in, or uh, bring it in via rail and highway. And the Russians, right after they invaded the first time, they built a a bridge over the Sea of uh, Azov, which the Ukrainians conveniently blew up earlier in the war. And so now, yeah, your supplies are basically relegated to flying them in, which is quite dangerous because of all the anti-aircraft missiles that are just laying around the Ukraine these days. Um, or boating it in. And both of those don't give you high volumes that you need uh, when you're supporting a million-plus person population in a place that has no access to fresh water. So, yeah, I mean, really, I I think the play here, as I said the other day, is just take the land around it, put it under siege, and then wait for them to basically surrender. I think that's the only way to do it. The Ukraine, you know, as much as I want to see them pull this off, I don't think they have the bodies to throw at Crimea and win. I, the geography and the fortifications defender the de, uh, favor the Defender way, way too much. And I think the only thing that can be done is um, is just lay it under siege and, and starve them out. That's that's the only way to handle that, I think. But that's just my opinion. What do I know? I'm not a general. Okay. So now that we've covered that... To those of you that wrote in and asked for me to, to give my analysis of why it's such a pain the ass to take the uh, Crimea, there you go. You got it. Gave it to you. I listen. Am I not magnanimous? Okay, so the next thing I want to talk about briefly is the Turkish presidential election and what's going on there. There's actually two elections I'm going to talk about, one of them much more briefly than the other, but we do need to cover Turkey because that's what's happening right this second. So uh, as we all know um, – There is a major Turkish presidential and parliamentary election that has been coming up this month. And I did a whole episode on why this is important, not only just to democracy and all that, but but specifically to the oil and gas industry um, because of Turkey's growing relationship with Russia and what that means for Russia getting around sanctions and all these kinds of things. So I'm not going to rehash all that here. If you didn't catch that episode, go back and look for it. I think it's called something like um, I'm going to make you care about the Turkish presidential election or something like that. Um, I go into a whole deep dive about Erdogan and, and all of that and why that's a problem and why we don't necessarily want him winning the election. Um, so by all means, check that out if you haven't already. At any point uh, – at any rate, uh, where we're at today – so – the initial set of elections were held on May the fourteenth, which was um, uh, you know here about two weeks ago, at least as of the time of as of the time of this recording, and that election proved to be a little at least for the presidential side of it turned out to be a little inconclusive, although it was <clears throat> telling, let's say. So the vote came out to something like forty nine point five percent in Erdogan's favor with like 47% or something just a hair behind it in favor of the primary opposition candidate. And there was one third-party asshole, um, (laughs) speaking as somebody who has frequently voted for a third party and many an election in my life, but there was some third-party asshole that ran who got about 5% of the vote and kept anybody from getting the majority. Now, the way the Turkish electorate is set up is that the only way you win the presidency outright is if you get 50% or more of the votes as of the election. If you don't get 50%, it automatically goes to a runoff two weeks later, another another election, where the top two candidates go into a runoff, shootout-type election. Um, and that is, in fact, what happened here. Erdogan did not—he was half a percent down from making the majority or making the 50% mark, and so this went into a— um, and went into a runoff scenario. The runoff <coughs> happened on the 20, I believe it was the 28th, uh, which was just a few days ago, um, at least as of this recording. And as of today, they've released the preliminary election results. Now, this is just happening. That So let's keep that in mind. And so I say that because obviously there's still lots of news that's going to come out about this, I'm sure. But everything I have is basically where we're at right now today, and where we're at right now today is that Erdogan did win by a pretty narrow margin. I think he ended up getting something like fifty point, like five percent. I mean, it was not a lot. It was not a <clears throat> not a terribly high turnout, but the way it looks at the present moment is that he did, in fact, get over the 50% mark, which means he has been elected for yet another term as El Presidente of Turkey. Now, um, at this point, there has been no major um, accusation of any kind of electoral fraud like there was with the last election in Turkey. There was no secret ballots that came out of the blue. There was nothing like that. The opposition candidate has given his concession speech um, and everyone seems to be handling it with grace and and all of that. So <clears throat> as it sits right now, it looks like Erdogan has won, as far as we know, fair and square. So until news comes in otherwise, that's how we're going to proceed in this program. All right. So what's that mean? Well, it's not great for all the reasons I've covered in the prior episode. Erdogan has a very sort of neo-Ottoman mentality. He has a very hardline Islamic mentality. Uh, He's really moved Turkey from being a secular state to more of a religious state. He has redrafted um, the way the government works to give the power of the presidency much more executive, quasi-imperial powers that it previously didn't have. And so all of these are kind of problematic. And he also has a really close relationship with Russia. So there are a couple of immediate problems that we have to deal with. And now that we know that Erdogan seems to be in power for another term, um, you know, this is no longer a kick the can down the road, now we have to figure out how to navigate this. One of them is he's holding up um some some members joining NATO. Well one member in particular. Um I believe it's um oh my gosh, I'm blanking out now. Is it Finland or Sweden? I think it's Sweden. Uh, Finland, I think, successfully got in, but they were still blocking Sweden's entry, which is kind of a dick move. At any rate, um, you know, we were kind of hoping that Erdogan would be maybe lame duck or out of the picture by the time the next NATO summit happened, and this wouldn't be a problem, but it seems like that's not going to be the case. So how that gets dealt with, I don't know, but that is going to be a challenge for NATO and, um, and uh, Biden, effectively. The other thing is you know, they've been doing a lot to grow their relationship with Russia. They have a fairly friendly relationship with Russia, and a lot of that right now has to do with them buying oodles of Russian energy assets um, at rock-bottom prices and then refining it in Turkey and then selling it abroad and then just slapping a made-in-Turkey sticker on it, and that's how they're getting around the sanctions. That's not super great. Russia loves it. It's put a strain on, obviously, U.S.-Turkish relations and and NATO and Turkish relations, and this was all kind of an Erdogan thing because he's gotten deeper and deeper in with Putin. And so knowing we have another stint with Erdogan means that relationship's probably not going anywhere. Like, those two are in bed, and they're going to continue hanging out and doing their thing for another several years unless um, one of those two governments changes against their will, if you know what I mean. So, yeah, that's kind of where we're sitting right now on that situation. Um, to add to that, there is another um election of note this year, <clears throat> and it's probably not one you're thinking of., of course, you probably weren't thinking about the Turkish election all that much until I brought it up. But, uh, here we are. But about mid this year, um, there is going to be the United Nations Security Council election. Now, I know it's a little late in the game to be throwing on a whole new political organization here, so I'm not going to go into all the nitty-gritty, but at some point in the future, I'll explain this um, if somebody wants it. <clears throat> but the United Nations Security Council has a number of what are called permanent seats, which, you know, the U.S., China, Russia, those guys sit on. and they're there basically forever. Um, and then there are the five non-permanent seats that rotate out every couple of years. Um well, here in a couple of months, not too long from now, in fact, those five seats are coming up for uh, the two year the two year terms are ending. There's gonna be an election for who's gonna take on the next set of terms, which commence January one of twenty twenty four. Now, the way those five seats are calculated is two of them are have to be countries from the sort of African area, one of them has to be from the Asia-Pacific area, one of them has to be from sort of Latin America, Caribbean and one of them has to be from Eastern Europe. Uh, Yeah, can you tell the UN was set up during the Cold War? Anyway, what's interesting about this is is that there are only so many candidates available because it has to sort of cycle through different countries in that block, so that means there's only so many many candidates, uh, nations, that can get elected to that group. And for the most part, like, you know, okay, Algeria, Syria Leone for the African area. The Asia-Pacific's got Tajikistan and South Korea. Cool. Uh, one of those two has to get elected to the one position available. The Eastern European group, though, is the one that's interesting because there's two, there's two countries that are candidates for the one seat that is reserved for the Eastern European group. One of them is Slovenia. The other is Belarus. Now, what's interesting about this is, is I think you guys probably heard me talk about in the last episode. I think it was the last we had an episode or two back. Belarus has very strong ties with Russia. They were a former Soviet satellite nation. They have signed a union treaty where they're eventually going to merge with the Russian Federation at some point. I'm sure after this Security Council situation is resolved. Um, but if Belarus gets on the Security Council, this is actually going to change the voting block pretty significantly because right now it's really kind of like Russia and China are the power block on the Security Council in contrast to the U.S. and France and Germany and Britain, right? Um, but if you get Belarus in there, that starts to tilt the balance back in the other direction a little bit. It starts to move it more towards the middle give Russia and then China and that whole block there, a little bit more voting power. So obviously, um, if you were trying to contain Russian expansion, aggression, and all of that, then you would be probably leery of letting Belarus get in there. Now, I only just saw this news article um, here a few minutes ago, so I haven't had time to do any major digging on what the mecha- uh, the mechanics of getting a country elected is. But what I can say is my knee-jerk reaction is, boy, it'd be sure nice if Slavonia won that. Um, they also are a former Soviet satellite nation, but the difference is they've gone much more in the other direction. They've um, they've joined the European Union, they've joined NATO, they're much more friendly to all the things that we, um, you know, ideally probably would like. And so that's going to be an interesting one to see, because if Belarus gets that seat, that could prove, <sighs> that could give us some more complications on the UN Security Council that we don't really need. And um, yeah, so on that bombshell, I think we're going to go ahead and end it for the night, Hopefully, you found this interesting. Um, Shout out to the guys that asked for the tactical analysis of Crimea. There you go. That's what this guy thinks about it. Um, Let me know if there's anything else you want me to tackle. And um, until next time, this is Jordan Driscoll reminding you that I could take the Crimea. See you guys on the next one. Join us again next week on the Oil and Gas Geopolitics Podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.